0: Please open your Bibles this evening to the third chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 3, where I would like to introduce a continuation of our study of marriage. I've entitled this series of messages, Maximizing Your Marriage. God expects us to maximize our marriage, marriages, not just to make them better, but to maximize them for all their worth. For a number of good reasons. First, marriage is God's great gift for men under the sun. There's an existence that we do have under the sun before we meet death or Jesus Christ returns. Marriage is one of the great gifts God's given to men while we live here in this world. And as Solomon would say, under the sun. Marriage is the basic unit of human authority husband over wife when the basic unit of human authority breaks down then we should not be surprised to see shortly following parents over children masters over servants magistrates over citizens pastors over churches also falling when the fundamental element or unit is broken and that is husbands and wives third a man and a woman, can only achieve their full potential in the married state. You say, what about Paul? Paul was an exception. If God said it is not good for the man to be alone, but he needs help, he meant it. And a man with help is going to accomplish more than a man without help. So That's the third reason we need to maximize our marriages, to maximize men and women. You say, does a woman need marriage? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us, neither is the woman without the man in the Lord. A woman without a husband is a misfit. She cannot realize her potential. And don't raise exceptions. That's the rule of God's word. He designed marriage and ordained it for the benefit of men and women. Fourth, our spiritual relationship with God will suffer to the extent our marriages have problems. Your prayers may bounce off the ceiling tile if you are not on good terms with your wife. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 tells us that marriage problems hinder prayers. Fifth, we preach and we expect our children to wait for marriage. We teach them that they're not to go and shack up with someone in this world or to fornicate or to play the whore. How can we expect them to wait for marriage if we don't have marriages worth waiting for? The average Christian marriage, and I say that with sarcasm and disgust and it's in quotation marks, the average Christian marriage isn't worth waiting for. I can't blame a lot of Christian young people for not putting much stock in marriage. What they see between a husband and a wife is nothing they want part of. It looks far too much more exciting to live out there without the bonds of that union, where you've got a woman oppressing her husband and a husband abusing or not communicating with his wife. They don't see any fire, any passion, any appreciation or anything worth living or waiting for. We need to model marriages that our children will desire. We need to reprove this generation. God does not expect us to stand on street corners and preach this generation, but God does expect us to live lives that just simply by our conduct will condemn those who watch us. And last of all, our marriages had better be sound or Satan will use the conflict in marriage as the means to overthrow both man and woman. If you'll recall from the Garden of Eden, in the very beginning, how did Satan approach Adam and lead him into sin? and thus destroy the human race, but through his marriage. Because Adam did not control his wife as he should have, and when he was confronted by her to listen to her advice, he obeyed. Seven reasons why it's important for us to have good marriages. I don't have a degree in psychology. I'm thankful to God I don't. I don't have a degree in pastoral ministries. Thank God I don't. All I've got is the Word of God. But do you know what it tells this pastor? That it's able to make him perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. In these scriptures, I have everything I need to be able to preach to you everything you need to know on how to have a maximum marriage. Since you're in Isaiah, look at chapter 8 and verse 20. Here's what I have. To say about all the pastoral ministries, all the counselors, the Christian psychologists, and others. Isaiah 8 and 20, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They're filled with darkness, they don't know what they're talking about. I've been preaching on faith in the morning from Hebrews chapter 11. Doesn't it fit well? When we come to a subject like marriage, a personal matter, every man has some ideas on how he ought to manage his affairs at home. Every woman has some ideas on the relationship she ought to have with her husband. And the Word of God gives us God's opinion as to how he wants husbands and wives to relate. What will we do with the message? Will we modify it? Will we compromise with it? Will we rebel against it? Or will we by faith say that whatever God's word teaches on the subject of marriage must be right? It must be the best solution, even for 20th century marriages, and will hate any advice to the contrary. Now, that's what the psalmist would say if he was here. So I'll just quote him instead. Psalm 119 and 128 will do the job. But now looking at Isaiah chapter 3, I want to briefly spend a couple of minutes reviewing what I've preached the last two Sunday evenings. The last two Sunday evenings, I have preached hard at you women. But it wasn't me. I was simply preaching what the Word of God has to say about your role in marriage. But I'd like to summarize a couple of points that I didn't get to make in those two sermons two weeks ago and last week. And I want to introduce it by reading what to me is a very important passage in Isaiah chapter 3. I'd like to read verses 1 through 4 and then I'm going to read verse 12. This is the judgment of God upon a nation that rejects the word of God. When a nation rejects the word of God, this is what God has determined to bring upon them. For behold, the Lord the Lord of hosts doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet and the prudent and the ancient, the captain of 50 and the honorable man and the counselor and the cunning artificer and the eloquent orator And I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. And then verse 12, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err, and destroy the way of thy paths. When God is going to judge a nation, he takes away the men. And if there was ever a time when that is visible simply by looking around it today, where there is a lack, a great lack of men, real men, not males, but men. The mighty man, verse 2, the man of war, the judge, the prophet, the prudent, the ancient, the captain of fifty, the honorable man, the counselor, the cunning artificer, and the eloquent orator, they're gone. Children and babes rule our society, and women rule our society. We live in a day where the authority structure God has ordained in the home has broken down. If you're not aware of that, there's no sense in me reminding you of it because you're blind. If you haven't seen that that's the state of affairs in America. This is the judgment of God when children and women rule. And in most homes today, the father is a beaten, crushed individual. Let's not use the word man. He's beaten and he's crushed. His children and his wife oppress him and rule over him. And we're realizing the consequences of it in a generation that is more perverse and lacks more judgment and morality than any generation this nation's ever seen. Let us pray. Almighty God in heaven, O Lord of hosts, we thank thee for thy word that warned us there would come a day when children and women would rule over men and that structure of authority that you ordained in the Garden of Eden and increased after the fall would be put away and put aside And women would rise up and oppress their husbands. And children would rise up and no longer honor their parents, but would rule over their parents. And men would be oppressed. And the mighty men and honorable men and great men would disappear, driven, O Lord, into oblivion by those that oppress them. Heavenly Father, grant that in the last two Sundays and this day and next Sunday, the Lord willing, women in this congregation might realize their obligation before thee to submit themselves fully in everything as unto the Lord in obeying their husbands and to reverence their husbands. And, O Lord, to treat them like Sarah treated Abraham, calling him Lord. And, Heavenly Father, bless me to teach the men to rise up and shake off the shackles of oppressive wives and unruly children and be the man that you have ordained them to be to lead their homes and to command them in the way of righteousness. For the reasons that I've mentioned, O Lord, that Jesus Christ might be honored and magnified by the marriages in this congregation being pleasing in thy sight, that you might take pleasure in this congregation and pour out your blessings upon us and deliver us from the wickedness and the sins that do so easily beset us In this wicked day, have mercy upon us, Lord, through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Women in 1988 have more trouble submitting to their husbands than any time in the history of this country. And without straining in historical books, than any time in the history of the world, have women taken such liberties and children taken such liberties as they do in 1988. Women do not have very many things in their favor. What you women must rely on is faith in the word of God. If God's word has told you and has emphasized a form of behavior in which you are to submit to your husbands, then you must do so by faith. There's nothing in this world that's going to remind you to do it. You've got to do it by faith. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I'm going to do it. Regardless of what anyone else says. That's difficult. And in 1988, it's very difficult. Our society, the culture we live in, family influences contradict God's ordinance so much you don't have much in your favor to help you be the woman that God wants you to be. Today, women make their own choices in who they'll marry. That's a new idea. Today, women are not trained by their fathers to be submissive. Today there are a few examples of holy women like Sarah. Today we have women's suffrage and women get the idea that they're man's equal. Today we have crumbling authority in every sphere that promotes rebellious women. It's a matter of faith. And I want to say this, most if not all, of the women in this congregation have showed me a degree of faith in the last two weeks that rejoices my heart, and I know that some of you husbands are rejoicing also, that we have a group of women that have heard the hardest preaching on the subject of the submission of the woman and rejoiced in it. Remember, why did I preach it again last Sunday? by popular demand of the women. What kind of a statement is that? That's a glorious statement by the women in our congregation. And I want to commend you women for your faith. I pray to God that it will increase and you'll do your part in making our marriages all that God intended them to be by submitting wholeheartedly, fully, joyfully, gladly, with reverence, to your husband. Let me mention a couple of warnings to you women. Public disagreement with your husband on any matter short of life and death is unpardonable. And I don't mean that in the scriptural sense. Public disagreement with your husband is verboten, forbidden. God forbid if you women disagree with your husbands in public I did not make that point the last two Sundays. I was talking more about at home. When you disagree with your husband in public, no matter how small or insignificant the issue, you are rebelling against him and you will pay the consequences in having a crushed husband. Or your husband's going to crush you physically. And neither is God's choice in a marriage. Never disagree with your husband in public, even when he's wrong. Men understand that, for the most part, not to humiliate their bosses in a meeting by telling them he's wrong on some minor point, when everyone else that is sitting there is under authority also. Men understand that, for the most part. Don't ever disagree with your husband in public, even when he's wrong. Like I said, unless there's life or death involved, I want to warn about something else. Some of you women, and I hope that you'll hear me and not read between the lines. You never have to read between the lines with me, hopefully. I usually say what I mean and mean what I say. I have noticed that some of you women are planning one-night and two-night excursions with your husbands. Some of you have already done it. Others of you are planning it. The idea is good as long as this is remembered. A one-night excursion or a two-night excursion with your husband is no substitute for daily submission. When you women plan a party at the Tate House in North Georgia or some hotel special here in Greenville, you make the preparations, you purchase the food, you make the reservation, you're doing what you want to do. You're getting away from your children, you're having a good time on a date that you've planned that does not prove submission. That is no substitute for submission. And I don't want any woman doing something like that and then sitting under the preaching of this preacher and saying to themselves, well, I'm a submissive woman. Last week I took my husband out on Friday evening and we spent the night in a one-night excursion and we had a great time. I'm glad for the great time, but that is not submission. Submission is when you've got a headache and you're worn out from a day's work, and your husband is being downright rude and presuming on your service. And you do it cheerfully and quickly. Night after night after night. That is submission. That's what the Bible's talking about. It's not talking about one-night excursions when you're doing something for yourself to boot. I like one-night excursions. I think I'm rather normal that way. I like every night excursions, but don't let those be a substitute for daily submission. We often make jokes about children that have learned decibel levels without knowing the scientific explanation for the term decibel. You've seen children that the parents will yell for Johnny to stop doing something and Johnny doesn't even wiggle. He just keeps right on doing whatever he was doing. And then the parents yell a little louder. The decibels have raised 10 or 20 points. And Johnny stops and looks at where the noise is coming from and then goes right back to what he's doing. And finally, Mommy reaches a decibel level where Johnny can no longer avoid doing what he's do, avoid obeying. And so he discontentedly wanders off to find something else to get into. We make jokes about that. Because a parent that has to yell at their child is a parent where the child is ruling. It's that simple. Whenever you hear a parent yelling at a child in a restaurant or in the grocery store, you're being reminded that children are our oppressors. I want to remind you women, if your husband asks you one time that he likes some particular behavior on your part, whether it's the way you fixed fried chicken or whether he wants you to take up belly dancing, If he asks you one time, do it. If you make him ask twice or 102 times, you're doing nothing but what little Johnny does. You women, submission is being attentive and tuned to the desires of the person you are submitting to and serving. When that person says something, because they don't say it 105 times, does not mean it's not an important issue with them. Many men, by their temperaments, will ask once or will ask twice. They may have done it on your honeymoon. They may have done it a year ago. And because they don't ask again doesn't mean they have forgotten about it. You have crushed them. And they have withdrawn into their shell. Think about anything your husband has ever asked you to do for him and do it. The Bible says that it's the meek and quiet spirit of a woman that is of great price. These are points I did not emphasize the last two Sundays. The meek and quiet spirit of a woman is what the Bible says is of great price. I hope to see in future weeks a more valuable congregation and that the price of the women in this congregation has increased by seeing more meekness and more quietness on the part of the women. One woman put it to me this way, she said, as you understand and practice submission to your own husband, the way the Bible describes and appreciate the emphasis the Bible makes, it filters over or it spreads also to the way you behave around men in general, which is a very valuable observation, which is one that God expects women to understand that when they're in public with other men, they are to have a shame-based appearance, one of a meek and quiet spirit. Let me remind you women that the Bible uses the word fear in describing the woman's relationship to her husband. But I'm afraid today that the familiarity between husbands and wives has reached a proportion where you can't even appreciate the word fear. Now don't think about this too personally, but when I hear expressions like, she's my best friend, he's my best friend, she's my buddy, you don't find expressions like that in the Word of God. Those expressions can be adequate replacements for the word companion, which the Bible does use. But let us never forget that God tells us, and especially women, they ought to fear their husbands and see that they reverence them, and when you reverence something, you do not talk of someone, you do not necessarily always talk about it as being your buddy or friend. He is your husband, which is not just an office of friendship, it is an office of authority. 1 Peter chapter 3 uses the word fear. Let's make sure there's some fear and not familiarity Between husbands and wives. Now, husbands and wives are obviously going to be intimate, and they should be. But there also has to be a measure of fear. That's what the Word of God teaches, whether you like it or not. Enough on the women for now. What does the Word of God have to say about men? The first thing I want to say is that in this generation and in this church, the greatest problem the men have is not a problem of abusing their wives. It is a fact that over the last several generations, women have been afforded more liberty and have been shown more kindness and freedom and exalted and honored to an equal plane or a greater plane than their husbands than any other generation we know about. I'm going to preach that you husbands ought to love your wives and not abuse them because the Bible teaches that. But when we think of husbands abusing wives, let's remember what that really involves. We see it, quite a bit of that in Scripture with all the polygamous relationships that even God's men entered into, we can see that simply by considering nations and continents like South America, Africa, and Asia, where women are afforded no rights. They're not even a companion. They are relegated to the role of a servant without any love or affection or nourishment or cherishing. That isn't the problem in America. That isn't the problem facing our society, and that isn't the problem facing this church. The greatest problem facing this church, if it can be called a problem, is to have our women submit more fully and the men make some minor modifications in the way they treat their wives. Isaiah chapter 3 describes the state of affairs in America, and that is women ruling over men and women not submitting as fully as they should. The first thing we need to understand about the husband's role in a marriage, in order for the marriage to maximize its potential, is he has to be a ruler. Marriage is not a partnership. Marriage is not a democracy. Marriage is a monarchy. And the husband is king. It is not a partnership. It is not two friends who happen to live together who happen to be of the opposite sex. It is the basic authority structure of our universe. And the minute it breaks down, the minute it breaks down, which you can all recognize in the world around us, all the other authority structures begin to break down. That point is so important to me. Where did employees get all the rights that they have today? Where did murderers get all the rights they have today in our court system? They got it from women, thinking they had rights to participate in the management of the family, regardless of whether the husband gave them that right, privilege, or not. The first thing we need is men who will step forward and be decisive, opinionated, decision-makers, Who are not afraid of their wives that's the problem in America and in Christian marriages not that men are not giving their wives good enough treatment I'm not going to turn you to all the references because we've been over them God created the man first and he created the woman second for the man That right there, the priority of creation, established one thing. It is a man's world. This world was created for men. If you're a woman, this world was not created for you. You were created for one man called your husband. If you rebel against that, you're going to cut your own throat when it comes to fulfillment and happiness in this world. That's not me saying that. It's God saying that. God made the woman for the man, not the man for the woman. First thing, it's a man's world, and men should step forward and take charge of the world God gave them. Second, when the woman sinned in listening to Satan himself and being deceived, the Bible tells us that she was deceived and in the transgression and Adam was not. She committed a type of transgression that far exceeded Adam's as far as being a picture of her inherent weaknesses. Because of the fall, the authority of the man over the woman, which was already established by the priority of creation, was aggravated. Now the man is to rule more diligently, more strictly over his wife because she cannot be trusted when it comes to matters of judgment without the help of a man. 1st Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14. Let me remind you of 2nd Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6, where the apostle Paul warned Timothy that in the latter days false teachers would arise that would lead captive silly women there is one characteristic of false religion that almost 100% of the time will bear out if you look at it. The churches are filled with women. Jimmy and Tammy Baker did not buy their $26,000 doghouse with money sent in by men. Jimmy and Tammy Baker bought their doghouse, air-conditioned doghouse with money sent in by women And particularly, widows. You say, have you seen a survey of the contributors to Jimmy and Tammy Baker? I don't need to. Men wouldn't watch Jimmy and Tammy Tammy Baker on television. The man that would watch that show is a great exception. And he shouldn't be called a man. And then I have the Word of God on my side in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 14, which tells me that the Pharisees and the scribes use long prayers and for a pretense use prayers. To devour widows' houses. When the Bible describes women as being silly, it does not mean they sit around and cackle all the time, although a lot of women do that. The word silly, as it's used there as an adjective describing women, modifying the word women, is a word that describes helplessness, inability to protect herself from the deceptive delusions of false teachers. For two reasons, men are to be over their wives, and men over women in general. One, the order of creation. God made the woman to serve the man, not the other way around. Second, by the fall, she proved that she needs the protection of a man to deliver her from ignorance, naivety, and delusions. Look at Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19. Genesis eighteen nineteen. I know the husbands and wives of this congregation better than anyone in this room. The greatest source of frustration in the marriages from the husband's standpoint is not that he's not loving her enough. That's number two. Number one is frustrated women because their husbands aren't like Abraham in Genesis 18:19. Genesis 18:19 God speaks of Abraham for I know him that he will command his children and his household after him and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Here is what men need to do. The first Job God's given a man with a woman is to rule over her. He gave that to him in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. The first thing we need are, is for men to step forward and to take charge, and guess what charge includes? Responsibility for the home. The greatest thing you men could do for your wives is to step forward and take responsibility for your home. We live in a day when the religious training of the children is left in the hands of the mother. She'll get them to Sunday school. The athletic training of children, particularly among the blacks, is left to the mother. You know, whenever you watch television, especially football, and they finally zoom the camera in on someone, they're always saying hi to mom, because mom does most everything for the interest and welfare of those children. Discipline in most homes is executed by the mother. If men would step forward and become the leaders in their homes, they would take that great burden of responsibility that God never intended to be on the woman's back and she would be freed up from a burden God didn't design her to carry and that is frustrating to her. Remember, husbands, your wives hear everything I teach about family devotions and training your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Husbands, do you believe your wives have a conscience? When you go home and you do not train your children in the Word of God, and you do not execute discipline as I preached in 33 hours of messages on child training, what does that poor woman feel inside? The lack of a man. Where is the ruler of household, of the household, the man like this that will command his children and his household in the way of the Lord? Look at Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24 Joshua is about to die and he leaves the children of Israel with a dilemma, a choice they must make. Joshua says in verse 15 of the 24th chapter, and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. Women need a man that will stand up and say, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God made women to be followers. Some women need a little help to be a follower. But most women will naturally follow a man that will stand up and lead. And I beg and call upon you men in the name of the Lord to be rulers and leaders in your home. Let's look at Numbers chapter 30. I made reference to it last Sunday. I'd like you to see it. Numbers chapter 30. I'm trying to establish at this point that the first thing a husband needs to do to maximize a marriage. And remember, I'm not doing this because I feel good inside about it. I'm doing it because this is what the Word of God has to say about husbands and wives. Listen, I'd rather sing a couple more hymns and go home tonight. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. You make a vow, you better pay it. That's what Numbers 30 and verse 2 is teaching. Now, what if a woman makes a vow? Here's what it has to say about her in verse 6. And if she had at all an husband, when she vowed, or uttered aught out of her lips, wherewith she bound her soul, and her husband heard it, and held his peace at her in the day that he heard it, then her vows shall stand, and her bonds wherewith she bound her soul shall stand. But if her husband disalloweth her on the day that he heard it, that he shall make her vow which she vowed, and that which she uttered with her lips, wherewith she bound her soul, of none effect, and the Lord shall forgive her. Let's read it again in verse 12. But if her husband hath utterly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatsoever proceedeth out of her lips concerning her vows, or concerning the bond of her soul, shall not stand. Her husband hath made them void, and the Lord shall forgive her. Verse 13, every vow and every binding oath to afflict the soul, her husband may establish it or her husband may make it void. The point, the husband stands between the woman and God. A woman can make a vow to God and bind her soul, and if the husband hears it, he can simply disannul it. The reason he disannulls it is irrelevant. He has authority over the woman even in her spiritual obligations. That does not mean he controls her eternal salvation, but it does control the exercise of religion in the home. Now, this is a serious passage. Wives are treated like daughters in Numbers chapter 30. A father can disannul a daughter's vow, and a husband can disannul a wife's vow. The husband is the head of the wife. And when it comes to spiritual matters in the home, he better step forward and take charge. This is what God said. Now, if God said this, why did he make this provision? Did he make it for us to ignore? Or does it give us another example of husbands stepping forward and taking the authority God's given them? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. You ask, why are you turning to so many passages? Because the Bible says it has to be studied here a little and there a little. Here a little and there a little. Isaiah 28, 9 through 13. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34. Let your women keep silence in the churches. For it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Paul's teaching about women was the same as the Old Testament. There hasn't been a change. Verse 35, And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What I want to get from those two verses is this. You men, to maximize your marriages the way God describes, had better be competent and prepared to answer the questions of your wives at home. And not only that, are you prepared and competent to teach them and instruct them and command them in the way of the Lord? Or are they your superior? Now am I getting anywhere? Am I getting anywhere on why I make this point number one for husbands in a marriage? Are you the obvious superior to your wife when it comes to the spiritual leader in the home? If you're not, you're breaking down the very... Structure that God ordained for a happy marriage and for marriage that will be saved because the minute a woman begins to contribute her opinions toward the management of the family is the day the family is on thin ice over a deep lake. That's the word of God. They're led captive by false teachers. They are the weaker vessel and that's why God put the man over them. Men, are you over your wife and are you the leader of And the ruler, and do you command your family and your household in the way of the Lord? Or does your wife watch you crumble? Does your wife watch you neglect the duties that I preach for husbands and fathers to take in the home? Let me speak briefly this evening about the nature of authority. I've just established, and I've established for the last two Sundays, that the husband is in authority over his wife, and he's to rule over her, and she is to obey in everything, and to reverence her husband. Does that leave the husband free from responsibility? May he act any way that he chooses. Look at Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, why did God create authority structures? For the benefit of the one in authority, or the benefit of the one in submission? Think about it. Why did God create authority structures? For the one in authority or the one in submission? The one in submission. Look at Romans 13, which is dealing with civil rulers. Verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. I know this is dealing with civil rulers, but look at the message it gives us in the first sentence of verse 4. He is the minister of God to thee for good. God did not create positions of power where kings could lay out on a bed and have beautiful women plop grapes into their mouths, while other beautiful women fan them. That is not why God created kings. God created kings and other rulers for the benefit of those under their authority, so that those that do evil might be punished, and those that do well might be praised. And let's apply that to marriage. God placed the husband over the woman for the protection of the woman, He created the woman for the service of the man, I agree. But the relationship of that authority is for the benefit and protection of the woman. If they'll learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. If they make a vow, let their husbands determine whether it ought to stand or ought to be made void. If there are false teachers running around in this world that will lead captive silly women, let the husbands deliver them and protect them from such danger. Authority is designed by God for the benefit of those under that authority. Look at Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. I want to show you a simple statement in the Word of God where a husband, if he didn't do certain things, the wife could just walk out. Exodus chapter 21, this has nothing to do with divorce. This isn't the divorce passage of Deuteronomy 24. I'm using this passage to show that those in authority are under obligation to God. Yes, men, you may be the head of the woman. But remember, Christ is your head and God is the head of Christ. Exodus chapter 21 and verse 10. If he take him another wife, her food, that is the food of the first wife, her food, her raiment, and her statement under the law. That if a man did not fulfill certain obligations that God held him accountable for, the woman could walk out free. Food, raiment, and the duty of marriage, the sexual relationship. Those three things were an obligation towards the woman. If he didn't keep them, she was free. Those in authority have obligations upon them also. Look at Proverbs chapter 20. And verse 28, Proverbs chapter 20, the point I want to establish right here is that the man who takes his proper position in the marriage and rules his family is yet under obligation to rule in a certain way. They just want to establish that even kings have to rule in a certain way. Proverbs 20 and verse 28, mercy and truth preserve the king and his throne is upholden by mercy. What makes a good king that will have a long-lasting reign and dominion? Mercy and truth. A king that lies, and I'll not turn you to all the passages in Proverbs, a king that lies will lose his throne. A king that shows no mercy will lose his throne. Kings are under obligation to show mercy and to practice truth in their reign. Think about fathers and children. There's an infinite distance between fathers and children. The distance is so great that the rolling of the eyes or the mocking of the eyes, as I've already mentioned from Proverbs chapter 30, was a sufficient crime for capital punishment. And yet, I read in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Yes, there's an infinite distance or a very great distance between father and child, but the father is still under obligation to God to treat that child in a certain way. As you men, and I hope you will, step forward and be the leaders in your home that God expects you to be, remember you are under authority yourself, and God requires things of you. Look at Proverbs chapter 30. One of my favorite... Oh, forget that. Everything's my favorite... But you know what I mean. I like this passage of Scripture. In Proverbs chapter 30, we have described sets of things that have certain characteristics. Beginning in verse 29, we have a set of things that are beautiful, things that are comely. Verse 29, There be three things which go well, yea, four are comely in going. A lion, which is strongest among beasts, and turneth not away for any, A greyhound, and he-goat also, and a king against whom there is no rising up. Four beautiful things. A lion for its strength, a greyhound for its speed, a he-goat for its agility and grandeur standing on some rock pinnacle of a mountain, and a king against whom there is no rising up. Someone tries to commit sedition against the king, he crushes them. And there is no rebellion in his kingdom because everyone is afraid of the king. And he rules over his kingdom. We wish for a president like that, don't we? Wouldn't it be great if George Bush was a president against whom there was no rising up? I wish we had a president like that. And when Congress rose up to overthrow his opinion, there would be no rising up because he would crush them. You say, now you're breaking down the checks and balances in the U.S. government. Oh, to God, we could break them down. God never designed checks and balances in human government except one. And it isn't the Constitution of the United States. It's this right here. You give me one God-fearing man with an IQ of about 90 and put him in the presidency of this United States of America and we'd be a whole lot better off by next week if he feared God and had the Word of God. I have emphasized to you men the glorious, picture of a king against whom there is no rising up. As husbands in the home, you are a king. And yes, God expects you to rule in your home. Remember, God told ministers that in order to be qualified for their office, they must rule their own houses well, because if they can't rule their own houses, how shall they take care of the church of God? You are to rule your houses as Abraham and Joshua did. Nonetheless, look at chapter 28, Proverbs chapter 28, and this is what I'm going after in point number two. Yes, you need to be a ruler, but you better rule with understanding. Verse 16, the prince that wanteth understanding is also a great oppressor, but he that hateth covetousness shall prolong his days. I want you to get the first half of that verse. The prince that wanteth understanding. That doesn't mean he's praying for understanding. That means he lacks it. (laughs) He doesn't have any. The prince that doesn't have any understanding is a great oppressor. A husband that rules in his home but doesn't have understanding is also a great oppressor. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes 4. I glory in man's authority, because it is man's authority that makes man the image and glory of God. When the Bible says that the man, not the woman, but the man, is the image and glory of God, it is describing his position of authority. And then it says the woman is the glory of the man. I glory in that authority. But I also I want to glory in that authority only when it is applied with understanding. Look at this verse and hear the pity, feel the pity of reading these words in Ecclesiastes 4.1. Solomon said, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. That verse, maybe you don't, maybe you aren't affected as much as I might be in reading certain passages of Scripture. But if there was ever a verse for the liberation of wives under an oppressive husband, it's Ecclesiastes 4 and 1, where Solomon said he beheld all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Yes, princes may oppress citizens. Pastors may oppress churches. Fathers may oppress children and discourage them. Masters may oppress servants, but husbands may oppress wives. Are you an oppressive husband that lacks understanding in how to treat a woman? If you are to be a prince in your home that is filled with understanding, you must learn this important principle of management. This is the great rule for husbands to do better in the home, for managers to do better on the job, for kings to do better over nations. They must learn how and when to compromise. Now, how's that? You choke at the word compromise, men. You've got to learn to compromise. It is a prince that doesn't understand appropriate compromise that is an oppressor. Now, the fact is, all of you men have compromised already. There's not a man of you that's been married for over 24 hours that hasn't compromised somewhere. That's just a fact of life. We're forced into it many times. But there are times where you may not have compromised where you should have. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 5. And let me remind you of the point that while God made David king, Israel had to make David king. Which means that... Authority and submission are voluntary. A person in authority over one in submission is thereby a mutual agreement of consent, which if you've got half a light burning tonight, if you've got half a light burning, you'll recognize to keep that person in submission, in submission, you've got to bend a little bit. Look at 2 Samuel 5. And then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron, and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that led us out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. Now God had said, David, you're to be a captain over Israel. Did that make David captain? Look at verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Do you know what made David king? Um, A covenant. It wasn't a marriage covenant, but it was a covenant. A league is a covenant. A mutual agreement. You be our king, we will submit to you. If we break the laws of God as recorded in his word, or you've been given civil authority by God's word, you execute that judgment, even if it means death. But we'll submit to you, we'll pay our taxes. When you call for an army to be raised to fight a war, we'll be there. But it is by mutual agreement. Could David become king by himself? What was he going to do? Walk into Jerusalem and rent a hotel suite and put a little sign over the door that he's now king? What good would that do? It has to be by mutual consent. And so it is in a marriage. The marriage covenant, if you want to break it right down to its simplest elementary facts, is a mutual agreement of a woman agreeing to submit to a man and the man agreeing to rule and love his wife. That's what the marriage covenant is. The essential elements of a marriage covenant are that agreement to submit and to rule. God said David was captain, but Israel had to make him captain by league or by covenant. All governments are popular. All governments are popular. No government has ever existed that the people didn't want. Because if the people didn't want the government, what could they do about it? Overthrow it. No government is ever strong enough to overthrow the people. You say, but they have the army. Who is the army? The people. All governments are popular, which means all those in submission under authority have agreed to that authority. Our nation loves the way our government is want run right now. If they didn't like it, they'd overthrow it and we'd have a new one. They would force our government to restore some of the liberties and common sense this nation was founded on 200 years ago. Masters have authority over servants, but servants can quit, can't they? When a servant quits, hands in his resignation and walks out the door, how much authority does the master have? You say, what are you driving at? What does the master do to keep employees there and not hand in resignation notices and walk out the door where he no longer has authority over them? He compromises where he must to maintain their respect and devotion to him. It is the wisdom of knowing when to compromise. Look at 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. Who was the first king of Israel? Saul. Second. David. Third. Solomon. Who took over after Solomon? Rehoboam. Let's notice the young married man, Rehoboam. As we read this passage, it's dealing with a king and government, but I want you to think of a young husband. This is how most men who have been taught anything about authority enter marriage. I'm going to set down the law here. We'll see who's boss and who's going to obey. This is how most men enter marriage. Follow, please, keeping in mind... A king against whom there is no rising up is a beautiful sight. God said so. But he also said, A prince that wants understanding is a great oppressor. Verse 1. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king. And it came to pass when Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt, that they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam, saying, Thy father, and who would that have been? Solomon. Thy father Solomon made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke which he put upon us lighter. And we will serve thee. Here is a nation agreeing to a man We want you to be king, and we will serve thee. You men that have wives that have said to you, God has put you in authority over me, and I will serve you. I will obey you. I will be a good, submissive wife. Make sure you behave not like Rehoboam did, but the opposite of the way he behaved. Now let's listen as the woman or the nation agrees to submit, and what does he do about it? All they requested was Solomon taxed us heavily. Remember, Solomon had to build all those palaces and houses and the temple and all the things that he built. He taxed the people heavily. They said, if you could make it a little lighter, we'll serve you. And he said unto them, verse 5, Depart yet for three days, then come again to me. And the people departed. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived, and said, How do ye advise that I may answer this people? And they spake unto him, saying, If thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day, and wilt serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be thy servants forever. There's more wisdom in that verse than a hundred young men put together and squared. Wisdom of an old of old men on how to keep those under authority submitting cheerfully. Verse 8 But he forsook the counsel of the old men, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him, and which stood before him. Notice that it was old men that gave him the advice of compromising. Now here are some words that are hard to swallow for someone who loves authority. If God's word says that kings against whom there is no rising up is a beautiful sight, why would old men advise a king to be a servant? How was the king to be a servant? By obeying their request. What was their request? Make things lighter for us. Be a servant to them this day. He forsook the counsel of the old men. Verse 9, and he asked the young men, What counsel give ye that we may answer this people? who have spoken to me, saying, Make the yoke which thy father did put upon us lighter. And the young men that were grown up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou speak unto this people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make thou it lighter unto us. Thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. And now, whereas my father did laid you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke, My father hath chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Isn't that tremendous advice? Here's a young manager. Here's a young husband who hears a message on the fact that husbands ought to ruin the home. They come home after the evening service. They're silent all the way home. They're waiting to get into their kingdom because they're going to lay down the law. They slam the door shut and they tell that woman, if you thought that you were getting away with things before now. You wait till I get a hold of you the next time you try to rebel against me. When the woman's been sitting there for the last two hours begging God, oh God, grant that he might hear this message and go a little lighter on me. You say, is that an act of rebellion? Was it an act of rebellion when the people of Israel came and said Solomon was hard. If you'll make it lighter, we will serve thee forever. Does that sound like rebellion to you? it sounds like they had reached the breaking point and could no longer bear up under the heavy yoke that Solomon had placed upon them. You ask, do you know what you're talking about this evening? I know what I'm talking about. I've been married for 12 years. I may not be very old, but I'm old enough to know that the wisdom in the first part of this chapter is better than the wisdom in the last part of it. I've practiced both. You cannot force a woman to submit she may grudgingly go ahead and do everything you command her and force her to do, but she will not do it willingly, and it will be worse than if she hadn't done it at all. Sam, you sound like you know also. Brethren, this is life and the wisdom of the Word of God. You don't need to have gray hair to be have wisdom. Now, a man with gray hair has already learned this lesson, probably. But young men, pay attention to the Word of God. There is a place to compromise. compromise. You choke on the word, there's a place to compromise. Jeroboam listened to the young Turks, the young bucks, the young bucks that he had grown up with. Verse 12, Rehoboam gave the people the, the, the message. Well, let's, let's read about it in verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had appointed, saying, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people roughly, that slamming the door and telling her things are going to be different now. If you thought it was bad before, wait till you meet the new man. Rehoboam answered the people roughly and forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him and spake to them after the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people, For the cause was from the Lord, that he might perform his saying, which the Lord spake by Ahijah the Shilonite unto Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And to summarize it, let me tell you what happened. This wife left home. Rehoboam had the opportunity to rule over the twelve tribes of Israel, the entire dominion that King Solomon had. Because he answered the people roughly and did not have the understanding to compromise, ten tribes are going to say... In verse 16, what portion have we in David, every man to his own tents? They walked out on Rehoboam. They were willing to have submitted forever if they simply would have been treated with a little kindness and consideration in relaxing the tremendous burden that Solomon had put on the nation. But because he didn't follow that advice, the people rebelled and left. There's a breaking point. And the important message for us to get, men, is that with your wives there is a place for understanding and compromise. Look at First Chronicles chapter 13. <clears throat> First Chronicles chapter 13. And David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader... And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and Levites which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us, and let us bring again the ark of our God to us. This is when the ark of the covenant needed to be brought into Jerusalem. Notice how David goes about doing it he sends out a declaration from the king with the king's seal upon it, saying, any man who is not gathered together to bring the ark into Jerusalem, his house will be turned into a dunghill and he'll be thrown into a furnace. Is that what he said? He asks. He asks, if it seem good unto you. If it seem good unto you. You say, that doesn't sound like much of a king to me. Are you going to listen to the word of God or not? No one in this room loves a king against whom there is no rising up more than I do. But God doesn't leave it there. God also says a king's throne will be upholden by mercy. Mercy. And there's a place for mercy where you ask. And you become a servant for a purpose of winning the affection and devotion of those under your authority. I am at a time, I know that. But will you let me make one brief point that I'll elaborate on next Sunday? Thank you. I asked. I just want to make this point. You're going to have to wait till next Sunday for me to elaborate on it. If the husband was made first, and the woman was made for the husband, and the husband is to rule over his wife, according to Genesis 3.16, after the fall, and all of her desires are to be his desires. And yet the Bible teaches in Ephesians chapter 5, please follow the dilemma. And the Bible teaches that husbands are to love their wives as their own, as, as Christ loved the church. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. If husbands are to rule and their wives were created and because of the fall, Place in a situation of serving them, and yet husbands are to give themselves in the service and love of their wives, where in the world do we find that medium where the husband is still the husband and the wife is the wife? If, maybe you don't see the dilemma yet, if the husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church and gives himself for it, then the husband is going to do everything for the wife. And pretty soon you'll have the wife in the position of the husband and the husband serving the wife. I've heard, I've heard so many messages from Ephesians 5.25 and, you know, women love to hear the words, husbands love your wives as Christ also loved the church. But that phrase doesn't mean anything unless there's a sense put to it. Should a husband... Sell his hunting rifles in order for his wife to buy 10 more pair of shoes. Now wait a minute, it says, "Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Should a husband sell his fleetwood because his wife likes little cars? Should a husband become a house husband and change the diapers and do the dishes so that his wife can pursue a career? Did God intend anything like that in Ephesians 5? What is the limitation? If you don't see it yet, go home and think about it. It is terrible. God created the man. It is a man's world. And he created the woman to serve the man. After the fall, that difference was aggravated where the desires of the woman were to become the desires of the husband. She was to be ruled by him and serve him. Now how and what did Paul mean when he said that husbands are to give themselves for the wives. If the husband gets down and sacrifices his desires for the wife, then what do you have? I can't elaborate on it, but I'll show you. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I know what's going through some of your minds. A king against whom there is no rising up. I understand that. But now you're talking about compromise. How far should a husband compromise? Briefly, as long as it serves his interests and maintains the minimum that God requires for women. A husband should compromise no further than what serves his interest as husband. No king compromised beyond that point. Rehoboam should have been a servant for what purpose? To have become a true servant or to have simply won the affections of those people so they would have been devoted to him for the rest of their lives? I mean, that statement back there didn't mean that Rehoboam should have got out in the street and begun ditch digging and put the Israelites one day at a time in his throne. It had nothing to do with that at all. That is a prince that lacks understanding. In the other extreme, notice how the answer is given right in Ephesians 5, 25 through 28. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that the church might become God and Jesus might become man. Why did Jesus Christ love the church and give himself for it? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Why did Jesus Christ love the church and give himself for it? For the benefit of the church or for his own benefit? For his own benefit. God did not save sinners because he felt sorry for sinners. That isn't taught anywhere in the word of God. Jesus Christ came and died for sinners to magnify the grace and kindness and love of Almighty God. To magnify Himself. And He died for the church and He gave Himself for it. And He washes the church by His Spirit and regenerates them to make them all that they should be in order to please Him. God is independently happy without you or me. God did not need my name in a book of life to be happier, brethren. God saved just to magnify to the universe his own glory. He did not save me because he felt sorry for me. Listen, everything within the nature of God said I ought to go to hell and suffer for my sins. But in order to magnify his own glory, he has saved me And given himself for me and sanctified me by his spirit. So now I use my voice to praise him. And believe me, when I'm in heaven, I'm going to do it for the rest of my days. He's won my affection, brethren. Now look at the next verse. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as. Remember, that's an adverb construction saying this is the manner. Now, when you come down to verse 28, so, in the way Christ loved the church, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. This is a man's world. God created the men, God created men in this world for the benefit of what this world could offer them. God created the woman for the benefit of the man. The man is to love his wife to the degree and in the way that he perfects her and makes her all that she should be within her sphere in order for him to realize everything God intended by a man having a good woman that submits loved by a husband. Are you following me? There is a dilemma. When you start studying the authority of the husband and the love that God requires of that husband, how far should the husband go in compromising and trying to serve his wife? So far as he is able to make that wife everything God expects her to be and to keep all the minimum requirements that God requires of him for his own benefit. Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for it for himself husbands are to love their wives and nourish and cherish them and stroke them and build them up and praise them so that that wife will be everything that she should be within her sphere to help the man you beat down your wife you don't love her you don't nourish her and cherish her she'll never amount to what god intended for her and if she doesn't amount to what god intended for her guess what's going to happen to you you won't amount to what God intended for you by her help. I'll spend a great deal more time on that next Sunday. For tonight, husbands, you are to rule and command in your households, but a prince or a king that has understanding is one that will be saved from oppressing his wife and children. The Bible warns men from abusing their authority. Don't abuse it over your wives. Learn to compromise. Every manager knows that. To keep men dedicated and devoted, there is a place to compromise and to give because people reach the breaking point. And because of the familiarity between husbands and wives, oftentimes a wife reaches the breaking point and a husband is oblivious to it. Men, there is teaching coming on you knowing your wives. The Bible tells you husbands dwell with them according to knowledge Know your wife. Know what a woman needs and give it to her so far as you should to make her a better woman to serve your interests better. If you make your woman everything she should be for you, you'll be making her everything God wants her to be. And if you make her everything God wants her to be, she'll be everything she could possibly be in this world. Learn to compromise with your wives and win their affection. You know men men often say if you give in you'll spoil your wife if you give in you'll spoil them and then they'll rebel let me ask you this if you went in to work tomorrow and you're the the boss of your boss calls you into his office and said we've held a special meeting this morning and because of the fine service you have provided to this company and your dedicated loyalty to me and to your supervisor when he names him, we're going to give you a 25% raise effective immediately and a company car. Would you walk out of that office spoiled and prepared to rebel or would you walk out of that office prepared to work 16 hours that day? You men, you know how you'd respond. It's a pity you don't think that way with your wives. I have preached to the women That if they'll submit to you and reverence you like God commands, there is a law of Scripture and a law of nature that you husbands will honor and exalt and reward them for it. There is an equally opposite law for the men. If you'll reward your wives, they will serve you forever. And let me tell you, when you get that circle rolling, it's quite a circle, and that's called revival in marriages when you get that circle working in the proper direction. May God bless us to be princes with understanding.